You're listening to KGNU, 88.5 FM, 1390 AM. I'm Susan Moran. We're devoting the next hour to discussing tiny yet mighty powerhouses of the world, bacteria, the microbial inhabitants of our gut, which right now may be overloaded thanks to the holiday indulging. In fact, roughly 100 trillion bacteria are living and gorging in our gut. So if you want to join the conversation, get ready to call the studio at 303-442-4242 a bit later. So maybe some of you have been wondering how all the rich and varied foods and alcohol you've indulged in over the holidays are affecting not just your waistline, but your overall health. And what types of food we eat help the good and the bad microbes in our gut. Microbes influence our health and well-being by influencing our gut directly, as well as the crops we eat and the soils in which we grow the crops. These tiny bugs in our gut, called the gut microbiome, have been linked to so many disorders, including obesity, inflammatory bowel disease, diabetes, cancer, immune disorders, and even mental illness. These gut bugs are also being employed to cure diseases. My guest today in the studio is Amy Shefflin. She's a doctoral student at Colorado State University in food science and human nutrition. And she studies how the food we eat alters the microbial communities in our gut and how these bugs in our bodies influence our overall health. In fact, we had her on the How on Earth Science show a few weeks ago, and uh, due to popular demand, we're bringing her back so you all can join the conversation. So a bit later, again, call 303 442 Four two, four two. So I'm going to jump right in. Amy, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Susan. It's great to be back. It's great to have you here. Um, so how much damage has all the holiday dessert indulgence done to my gut? You know, those butternut cookies, whipped cream, pumpkin pies... Well, the interesting thing is a lot of the foods that we indulge in during the holidays have a lot of uh, sugar in them. And to to tell you the truth, our bodies are actually very efficient at absorbing those sugars and packing on the pounds on our waistline for us. That's good to hear. That is good to hear. Um, However, uh, we also need to think about feeding our microbes. And since we do such a good job of absorbing those sugars and using them for energy... What that can do is not leave a lot behind for our microbes to feed on. And so the question becomes, did you have some vegetables with dip or some salad in addition to those so you were also (laughs) feeding your microbes, or didn't you? Because they can help offset that's the correct. Damage. That's correct. So our bodies use uh, the simple sugars for energy, and then there are more complex starches and sugars that are found in fruits and vegetables and whole grains that will make it further down our digestive tract and feed the microbes. Now, if they're starving, what happens is they start to break down that protective mucus layer that keeps our guts healthy and strong and protects us whenever we have something potentially ga- uh, damaging in our system. And so if you don't feed your microbes, that's all they have to eat, uh, and they'll break it down. And of course, um, you know, beverages is a is a whole other question. But uh, thinking just about sugar, they actually feed less on the sugar, and we use that for energy, whereas they use these complex carbohydrates that are in whole grains, fruits, and vegetables. And so, one thing that you can do during the holidays is make sure you're feeding them too. <laughs> and feeding them, it sounds like, with a diversity 
of all these good things, sort of the fiber, the diversity of vegetables in our diet, not just like tons of kale. Exactly. That's right. And the reason for that is uh, one thing that we are learning is very, very important for gut gut health is the diversity of organisms that are living there. And so if you provide them with a diversity of types of carbohydrates, some kale, some brown rice maybe, some carrots, uh, various amounts of of different colored vegetables and different amounts and types of fibers, then you're going to have a lot of different types of organisms in your gut living, and we know that that is one way to make your gut healthier. So fascinating. So I know this is this burgeoning field, and just when we think we know a little bit about who we really are, it sounds like we are inhabited by what? Body snatchers? Guardians? I mean, who are these? What are these trillion-plus microbes in our bodies? And are, like, how many species are there? And what do we know about them? Just to back up a little bit about, you know, the lay of the land in, in our gut. Sure. I think that we are living in an exciting time and learning about microorganisms. Historically, you know, when I was a child, we mostly saw them as the enemy and something to fight. And I know uh, there were a lot of times when I was young and I had an ear infection or I was sick. And the first arsenal, uh, the first tool in the arsenal when, when you're a sick child is a lot of times you take antibiotics. And so we really saw it as an enemy that could make us ill, that we should go out and, and just completely um, get rid of or destroy. And now what we're... Kind of like a chemotherapy approach, just destroy all the bugs. Right, just... um, And, you know, it's kind of the equivalent of a forest fire. So when you're taking something like an antibiotic, it doesn't just get rid of the organisms that potentially are making you sick or could make you sick, but it gets rid of everything. And so what happens is you end up with sort of a microbial wasteland. And what we're learning now is, is... is really the danger of that because we rely on um, a lot of the friendly organisms for keeping us healthy and helping us absorb the nutrition from our food every day. And it makes it really a lot easier for harmful organisms to move in if you completely clear out the field. So we're finding now, for example, some antibiotic-resistant infections. There's an organism called Clostridium difficile that's become a problem in hospitals that causes severe diarrhea. And a lot of times, the way that organism can move in and overpopulate is um, if someone through the through a health problem has to repeatedly take antibiotics over and over again. So what we're learning now is that microbes are important allies for our health. They keep us strong. And I think the new approach is let's figure out how to help these beneficial microbes grow and and do their job and sort of coat the inside of our system. And let's protect ourselves that way instead of eradicating everything. And it's not just our physical health, right, but also our mental health. That yes. It seems like scientists are learning more and more about that connection. Isn't that Talk about Im- that a bit, yeah. What, what, what is that link? Sure. Um, I, I think it's just completely amazing to think about the microorganisms in our gut can affect whether or not we're potentially depressed or happy. But keep in mind that uh, one, of, one of the important neurotransmitters uh, that plays a role in us being mentally healthy is serotonin. And of serotonin is actually produced in the gut. And we know that there are organisms that assist with producing this neurotransmitter. And there have been some studies in animals that have actually shown, in mice, that have actually shown 
um, that certain types of bacteria that produce serotonin, one of them is named Lactobacillus rhamnosus. It's one that's in yogurts on These the shelf. great for playing hangman. Yes, yes, that's Say right. That again. Take notes. Lactobacillus rhamnosus. And you can look for that on the back of your yogurt containers. They, if you have a really high-quality yogurt, they will list out the organisms that are in there. Um, also on your probiotics, again, uh, rhamnosus is the, the last part of the name. And this organism in the study with mice was found to produce serotonin or, or some sort of neurotransmitter and have an equivalent effect to a pharmaceutical antidepressant in this particular study. And we know that there is a nerve that connects the gut to the brain. It's called the vagus nerve. And we know that that's playing a role. So even though this neurotransmitter is being produced in the gut, it still can communicate with our brain via that nerve. And that's not my specific area of research. So um, I think it'd be exciting to get someone who's looking at that on the show, too. And I would love to call in with a question. But, I, so, you know, the, this idea that the, that, the, uh, that the bacteria in our gut are helping our mental health is very exciting for for new research that's coming out. Yeah, and you mentioned the probiotics. So it's been known, or at least a lot of us for many, many years, have just been figuring, if nothing else, take a lot of probiotics. But what does the science show on how are they effective and why and where? Sure. So most of the science in the, in the last four to five years has shown that probiotics uh, can be very effective for specific purposes. Um, so, for example, you might take a probiotic in order to um, alleviate if you're having recurrent yeast infections or, or something along those lines. So if you have a specific health problem and there's a probiotic designed to address that, uh, there, there is research for some probiotics that they're effective. It's been a little bit harder to prove that they actually are surviving through the entire digestive tract. And so that is still a big question mark. Meaning, will they last long enough to have a long-term effect or an effect on some of the things that may be ailing us? Exactly. So uh, it could be that you have to take it constantly in order for it to have this effect. Where it's the, the evidence is a little less that it's actually taking up house in your gut. And, and taking permanent residence there. And so I think the big question with probiotics as we move forward will be, uh, are the organisms that are in there really designed to live in the human body? Or were they designed, for example, to live in a pickled vegetable or in a, in a yogurt? And I, I see that, I think in the coming years, what we're learning now will really inform that. And we might have better survival as we're able to select and pick organisms that we know have lived in our bodies and helped our health for thousands and thousands of years. But we know more about the organisms that live in food right now. And we know they're also providing a helpful service to our health. And so that's what we've used so far. But I see that expanding in the coming years. So it sounds like there's a lot more marketing than actual scientific evidence behind taking probiotics. Well, you know, on the one hand, you could say yes, because we don't know they're surviving. And so some people might feel a little gypped that they paid a, a hefty price for something that they wanted to survive and continue to live in their body. On the other hand, if you have a health issue, and it's helping you, and it improves your health, and it does the job, maybe it's not so important that we understand right now exactly how that's happening. So I think there are two ways to look at that. And would a hedge be just taking a heck of a lot of them? 
often? Maybe not a lot, but frequently? So I think you have to be very careful. We don't really know at this point if you can take too many to the point where, let's say, you have a microbiome that's a little out of balance that can be easily disrupted. If you add trillions of one specific type of organism, it could really throw your balance off and potentially cause a problem that you didn't intend to cause. So I think people should... You know, as in all things, use moderation. (laughs) Listen to your body. If you start having some uncomfortable symptoms, then maybe you want to talk to a health professional. But definitely ease in and and listen to what's going on. And if it seems to be helping you, uh, then as far as we know right now, there are no reports of probiotics causing any permanent ill effects. So we're going to start opening this up to you listeners. Call us now. We're listening to um, my guest, Amy Shefflin. She's a Ph.D. candidate at Colorado State University in food science and human nutrition. Um, if you could, keep comments short and make sure you have a question for Amy. Uh, call anytime now, between now and 930-303-442-4242. So coincidentally, I was just last night with a friend, and she gave me a chocolate bar, and it's called Oh So Chocolate, and it just happens to be a probiotic chocolate bar. So back to the question about probiotics, marketing, science, both. I like to feel that this will, you know, make me healthier and taste good, but what's what's behind it? Uh, that sounds like the best way to get your probiotics that I've ever heard of in your chocolate. <laughs> How perfect is that? Uh, so w- what I would say... I. You know, I I am doubtful that this chocolate company probably has their finger on the pulse of microbiome research and selected the organism that is responsible for turning those wonderful, rich, dark pigments in chocolate into those beneficial molecules that improve our health. But if they have, then um, I am going to leave the radio show today and go invest in their company immediately. No. (laughs) (laughs) That's so funny. But, you know, I think that this, um, this, to me is really why I feel passionate about the research I'm doing in my PhD is the idea of pairing a food that people enjoy eating a whole, a whole food is, is fantastic. Something like chocolate that people like to um, treat themselves with is also good with the organism that we know helps our bodies digest it and turns it into uh, those small molecules that travel through our digestive system, calm it down, antioxidant molecules. So I think the future really is going to be pairing specific foods with the organisms that we know uh, transform them into these beneficial uh, qualities. So I, I would love to take a closer look at that after the show. And perhaps a bite. Yes. So um, we have a caller, Rich from Boulder. Welcome to the show. Uh, hello. Uh, and I'm happy to have this program on. Uh, I wanted to ask a question about the the effect of pesticide residuals in foods affecting gut microbiome, um, and uh, in particular, uh, there's been quite a number of papers recently about, uh, particularly a couple of authors, Samson and Seneff, regarding glyphosate residuals in food, hmm. and which is the ingredient in Roundup, the primary active ingredient, and uh, and the rise of many, many diseases since that particular pesticide has entered such high use in, uh, in crop production. So the effect of pesticide residuals in foods in the gut microbiome. Yeah, Thank- and and one, one other comment is that, unfortunately, uh, neither the FDA nor the USDA monitor 
for that particular pesticide because they claim, well, it's it's too difficult to uh, to analyze for. So we don't even know by those agencies what's really happening in terms of those residuals, even though there is a a um, residual tolerance established by EPA. They just don't even bother to analyze for it. Thanks, Rich. So, Amy, what about that? Great question, Rich, and I, I think you bring up an important point. Actually, in the research that we do in our lab at CSU, there there have been other, not, not byproducts of glyphosate, but residues from other pesticides have come through when we've looked at whole grains and fruits and vegetables because... Uh, in our studies, in order to mimic how most people eat, we did not use organic produce. And so what you're saying is definitely true. We see residues of that in urine samples, in blood samples, and um, it really is everywhere. And, and, and I think it's, it's also a, a small piece of the fact that our bodies deal with environmental toxins everywhere all the time. And, and so what I can say is, is, especially with Roundup, that product is actually designed uh, to eliminate weeds. And plants have a very different metabolism than what our bacteria do. That's not to say that some of the bacteria don't share a similar pathway, but for the most part, that that particular byproduct will likely be more harmful to a plant than it would be to a bacteria. But the truth of the matter is that, and, and then there are other pesticides that, that function on insects. And the truth of the matter is that we, we haven't really studied the effects of those chemicals on bacteria because that's not what they were designed to do. And so I think it's an important question. And in the meanwhile, uh, my recommendation for my family and friends that I give out is if you can afford to get organic produce, then when you're supporting that way of producing agriculture and you're using produce that should have less of those residues, then you're at least helping to minimize your exposure. Interesting. Thank you, Rich. Uh, We have a flood of calls. We've got Lauren from Denver. Welcome to the show. Boy, we must be on the same wavelength. Um, I'm calling about a gluten insensitivity issue, a gluten sensitivity issue and the damage it does to the cilia in my digestive tract and how I can best repair that. My understanding is that if I uh, take a lot of glutamine, uh, make sure I don't take any protein when I take that glutamine, it'll it'll be absorbed by my gut and have a more efficacious uh, you know outcome. Um, is there anything else? And of course, probiotics. Uh, is there anything else that you could recommend? My understanding is that the more I get damaged by gluten the more likely it is that I'll develop a full-blown celiac, that, that this damage can't really be fully repaired. Thank, thank you. Thanks for the question. We, we actually have a number of people in our family that are gluten-sensitive, too, so I really empathize uh, with your situation. And, you know, it, there actually is some evidence that's, that's supporting that those of us that have gluten sensitivity may have a different microbiome than those that don't. And that could be a reason why we're having... Uh, trouble finding a reliable test because, um, you know, one of the things that's happening in the media is because we don't have a reliable test other than if you're a full-blown celiac, um, sometimes I think people think it's a fad diet. And certainly if you don't have a problem with with gluten or with wheat, it is a very healthy food. But uh, there are a number of people who have health issues 
that come about when they eat gluten that resolve when they remove it. And again, you know, if your body's telling you that, it's a good idea to get rid of it. The good news that I can tell you is that you can heal from it. And the best thing that you can do is be very, very thorough. Read all the labels. Make sure that you're not consuming any gluten at all if that's what's causing the damage to your intestines. Um, you mentioned a supplement that some people recommend that helps restore those tight junctions between the cells that get damaged from people that have gluten sensitivity. And I think that's the best thing that you can do is just be very strict uh, because the cure for that is a lim- total elimination of gluten, and it will take time, but you will recover. Thank you for that. Now, someone called in and uh, just wanted me to ask you on the probiotic front, what is the benefit if anything, of kombucha, which is the rage, and I love to drink it. It tastes funky. It tastes weird, you know, the fermented drink. Yes. I have uh, I have to give a little shout-out to my uh, fellow friend in, in our lab at CSU, Allie Ham, who is uh, studying kombucha. Wish you were here to help me answer this question, Allie. Um, we actually had, there's a local uh, boulder uh, company that makes a fantastic kombucha product called Rowdy Mermaid, and he came in and <laughs> love the name. Yes, great name and um, great company, and and he came in and spoke on this, so I know a little bit about it from what he shared, and and we looked up some research at that point in time as a class and and shared in discussion, and. To be honest, there are a lot of studies that most of that are not done in the U.S. that show that it does have some anti-inflammatory effects and can resolve certain health issues. Most of those were done overseas, and I think that kombucha as a whole is under-researched in the U.S. There's a specific molecule called glucuronic acid that we thought was responsible for the health effects. Um, but it turns out that when we looked for that molecule in the research that we've done, it wasn't really there in kombucha. And so one of the beautiful things about kombucha is it's kind of one of those still remaining mysteries. So it's also full of a lot of different types of organisms. Some are bacteria, some are yeasts. And to be honest, um, the jury is still out on whether or not that's beneficial or not. Because if you think about it, uh, these are organisms that are meant to um, digest sugars, the types of molecules that you find in sugary tea, and so they may or may not be adapted to live in our bodies. Now, one thing we know for sure is that there's a lot of acetic acid, which most of us are familiar with in the form of vinegar, and that, and vinegar, actually has a lot of evidence for some beneficial effects like suppressing your appetite and helping calm down your gut if it's feeling a little grumpy, and so I think we can know that just just like some people take a tablespoon of apple cider vinegar, probably kombucha will at least provide those same effects. Interesting. And if vinegar, well, like a tablespoon a day, is a healthy amount based on what's known? That's what most people start with. That's what a lot of the studies use. And then some people I know have increased from there based on tolerance. You want to be careful again. Um, I know I keep hitting the, the moderation bell pretty hard, but you don't want to overdo it so far that you're actually starting to kill off those good microbes in your gut because you're taking too much. But a tablespoon a day seems to be about the place to start. Great. Well, we've got more callers coming in, but first I'm going to take a little station break. You're listening to KGNU Radio, 88.5 FM, 1390 AM in Boulder and Denver. And my guest here is Amy Shefflin, a PhD candidate at Colorado State University who prolifically has been studying uh, the role of gut microbiome in our health and crops and soils. So call in now, between now and 930, 303-442-4242. Our next caller is Jamie in Denver. Welcome. Jamie in Denver? Yes. Hi. Um, I just have a question. I'm curious about the relationship between this science or this field of study and 
Ayurveda? Great question, Jamie. Um, and I'm, I'm kind of, I'm thinking, I have done some reading about Ayurvedic medicine, and I'm not sure if anyone has really combined the two. Uh, you know, with, with Ayurvedic medicine, I've seen that applied in, in seasonal eating or eating for your body type. And I think that uh, I, I am unaware of any research in that area, but the connection that's coming to my mind that uh, people may end up looking at eventually, perhaps, is... You know, in Ayurveda, they do a good job of personalizing why some people respond to different foods differently than others. And they have their own explanation for why that occurs. And one thing we're learning in Western medicine is that the gut microbiota play a huge part in why a food that I eat might be very beneficial and helpful to me, but not to the person sitting next to me. And it can play... The, what really plays a role is who's living in your gut and what jobs are they doing for you and do you have the right one? And so it's interesting that you bring up this question. I hadn't really thought about it, but who knows? Maybe someday we'll find out that part of what dictates your Ayurvedic type is, is your gut microbiota. <laughs> That's fascinating. Great. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And before we get to the next caller, um, I wanted to ask about treatments. Do you think that in the future we're going to see, just as we do with a lot of medicine exploding, sort of this new explosion of microbial treatments? I mean, what's sort of all the buzz, at least in Boulder and Denver and a lot of areas, is the so-called fecal transplants. And you mentioned earlier for certain infections that may be effective. But aside from, I don't know, the ick factor and the wow factor, really what is it and what potential is there for what? So it's really an exciting area of research, especially because uh, some of the illnesses that fecal transplants are being used to treat had no other successful treatments, as in the case of those Clostridium difficile infections. These people were desperate. There and these are the hospital these infections? These are the hospital infections, although you can't, I know some people can, can get those infections for other reasons. And actually, fecal transplants are regulated by the FDA as a drug, but they made an exception for individuals with recurrent infections of this type because there was really nothing else to help them. And and so there actually now is um, a new practice happening in some hospitals where before you go in to have a gastrointestinal surgery, you can actually bank your own fecal sample so that if something happens uh, and the, the, the stress of, of the surgery or whatever treatment you're undergoing, it could be chemotherapy for cancer or a number of other things, happens to just stress out your gut microbes so much that it that it sort of wipes them out, then you have a way to give your own back to you. And so it's sort of an inoculation. And yes. And so you can, just like some people will, you know, bank placenta or other things just in case, uh, you can do that with your own uh, fecal samples so that you can be your own donor. There's also an exciting development in that area for people who think, you know, that that ick factor is a little too much. <laughs> and uh, they, they've actually, the, the research has progressed to where they have this this uh, laboratory-generated cocktail of about 30 organisms that they know do a good job of just sort of rebooting the microbiome. And this treatment is showing a lot of promise, and it eliminates the need for a donor and some of the risks that could come uh, with that of getting a donor that maybe has um, an organism that's hard harmful for the person that's Because they're universally good for everyone? Is that why? So far. So far that seems to be the case. And they seem to be kind of these key important microorganisms that start with a good solid team that attract the other um, healthy organisms to move in and, and make friends too. And so this 
this is an alternative treatment that is being used um, to fecal transplants that is effective for some people, too. And conversely, are there some known side effects? I've been reading about some. You know, for those who might go, eh, I'll hedge and just get it anyway. So far, we don't have any reports of a permanent horrible ill effect from this, but there were some, uh, there's one, this is sort of an anecdotal case study of a woman who had one of these horrible infections and received a sample that was donated by her sister who was, um, she was an obese person that was otherwise healthy. And interestingly, uh, the woman who had the infection had been a healthy weight her whole life, and after receiving this transplant from her sister, became obese after that. So it brings up the question of if you're going to get a fecal transplant, you want to carefully choose your donor, work with your doctor to <laughs> do some one. screening. That's right. Maybe you want to um, particularly selectively choose someone who is a lean person. Although I have to say they have tried to use fecal transplants in people that are overweight to try to help them lose weight. And it's, um, it's shown some success, especially if they also introduce um, a substantial amount of fruit and vegetables into the, into the diet. But so far, no huge permanent weight loss has happened as a result of that. So, And beyond that singular woman, there have also been studies on mice that seem to look more definitively about the obesity That's right. issue, right? So in mice, where we can control what they're doing, what they're eating, where they're living, uh, it's... It's fairly reliable, um, at least in a you know significant scientific fashion, that you can take a sample from a lean mouse, introduce it into an obese mouse, and they will actually lose weight even though they're eating the same food. And that comes back to the fact that the microbiota that I have and that you have will extract a different amount of energy from the same food. And so some of us are very efficient at turning our food into energy and others of us aren't. And that's partially related to the work that your microbes are doing for your body and how efficient they are at it. Fascinating. Well, uh, more callers. We've got now Bob in Denver. Welcome to the show. Oh, good morning. Enjoying the show. Hi. Hey, I'm kind of naive about the subject, and the reason I'm calling was suddenly about three months ago. I never had any stomach problems before, and just seemed like I ate a bagel, and suddenly bloating and gas, and boom, and it's been kind of off since. And it sounds like what you're talking about may be what's going on with me, but I'm not really sure how to define it myself because I'm totally naive. So can you, any thoughts here? It seems like wheat may trigger things, but I never know what food is going to trigger that kind of gassy bloating type feeling. So thanks for the question, Bob. I, You know, it sounds like um, this is something that you should definitely talk to either a medical professional or nutritionist and have them work through. There are elimination diets that you can use um, that, you know, it could be wheat, like you said, if it was a bagel, but there are professionals that specialize in guiding you through that. And there are also books that you could get from the library too, that can, so that you can eliminate certain foods. Um, You know, some individuals, it could be wheat, it could be another food. um, It can be related to your microbiome. It can't, but it sounds like if you're getting symptoms from specific foods, you might want to take a look at eliminating them and then reintroducing them one by one so that you can pinpoint what that offender is. So should I just see my regular PCP first and talk to them? So if you're if they're not really, you know, if they're not really, um, they're just out normal Western medicine. Sure, I, 
You know, I think that's a good idea if you're concerned about the wheat because they have a specific test that could tell you um, oh, really? with a simple blood sample if you do have celiac disease. And I think that that is something that you would want to know before you embarked on any other yeah, um, yeah. experiments. And, and would these things just suddenly occur out of the blue? It, that's the way it happened for our family. It, it, it just all of a sudden got really bad. We always thought we were fine with wheat, and then all of a sudden we weren't. And I'm not sure anybody knows exactly why this is happening to some people, um, you know, in the middle of their lifetime, but it's not uncommon for that to happen. Okay, so when I do talk to my doctor, what kind of just explain similar to what I've explained to you, or he'll have more probing questions, or how does it? How does that procedure work when, if you've ever had problems before? So he probably, he or she will definitely have some more questions for you. If you're concerned because it was a bagel and you're wondering about wheat, then I encourage you to ask your PCP about it, and I'm sure they'll be able to talk to you about what they like to do before they do a blood test and, and help walk through that process. You know, it's become fairly common in our country, so I'm sure they'll be able to help you with it. Gotcha. Okay. Thank Thanks you. a lot for the question, Bob. Sure. So another caller has asked this. What does carogenic diet do to our gut health? So I guess it's about eating small amounts of carbohydrates. Oh, okay. Thank you. I, ha I wasn't familiar with that term. Right, neither am I. So I think that um, what you've asked is a very important question because there, I think that, you know, when I was younger, there was Sorry, this... that's ketogenic oh, diet. Oh, ketogenic. Yes, ketogenic. of course. Um, yes, yeah, so ketogenic diets specifically limit carbohydrates to train our body to use fat for fuel. And so sometimes right. endurance athletes will especially uh, will consider these diets because if your body's already trained to use um, fat for fuel, then when you're in a long race, when you normally would sort of reach that point where you, where you crash or bonk, as people say, because of um, you've exhausted all of the glycogen and sugar reserves in your body and have to shift fuel types to fat, uh, endur some endurance athletes um, have noticed that they remove this, this sort of crash when their body is already trained to uh, use fat for fuel. But it's a very, very important question for gut health and for your gut microbiome because they do tend to be low-fiber diets. And I think that it, for the most part, they've been shown to be very beneficial, especially for weight loss. But we don't have enough people that have eaten this way for the long term to really know the long term health effects. And so just from what I know from my research, I have very real concerns about how starved our gut microbes could be in this type of a, of a diet environment, because what you're really doing there is also selecting for microbes that digest fat. And those are not the microbes that our bodies have had good, strong, healthful relationships for thousands of years. And so I think there's, uh, we, we do know, we do know for sure that ketogenic diets do change your gut microbiome. There have been research studies that have looked at that, and they do shift them towards microbes that digest fat. We don't have enough research evidence at this point to really put a detailed description on what that does for gut health, but we do know that even having a low-fiber diet for just 24 hours is enough that we can see that the microbes are shifting and starting to, to eat away that, that protective mucus layer. And so the question becomes, how long is it before that layer is gone? And then are you potentially increasing your risk to have a leaky gut at that point? And that's what can happen in the course of sort of starving the microbes, essentially. That's right, because as oh. they break down that protective layer, 
Now, all of these um, sort of abrasive foods and chemicals that are going on in our digestive system are bumping directly up against your cells, causing them to get a little bit inflamed. You have some maybe um, not friendly organisms banging against there, trying to get in and creating toxins that can break apart cell um, connections. And that that's the point where if the cell connections start to break down and you get leaky gut, you can actually have toxins or even organisms that can get through into the bloodstream. And so that's what you definitely want to avoid because it's very inflammatory for our immune systems and our bodies to have to deal with that. Thank you. Thanks for that question. Um, another caller, Anonymous, wanted me to ask you, similar to the first caller, Rich's question about pesticides, and that is that Given that humans share certain sequences in our DNA with trees, why are we not being more damaged by pesticides like Roundup? So uh, Roundup was specifically developed to target a metabolic pathway that plants um, use for, for energy. And in fact, trees don't use that pathway for energy. It's a very specific kind of weed. And the scientists chose to target that pathway because it's not one that our bodies use. And so uh, whatever um, parts of our DNA that we share with trees and other plants, this is not an overlap that we share. And that was designed by on purpose. Thanks for that question. Um, so another little station break. You're listening to KGNU, Boulder, Denver, 88.5 FM, 1390 AM. And do call in. We've got until 9.30 on the show, 303-442-4242. My guest is Amy Shefflin, PhD candidate at Colorado State University, who's uh, studying all things about the gut microbiome. Uh, welcome, Jean, from Denver. Hi. Good morning. Uh, thank you for the show. Very interesting. But my question is a bit off the, the main uh, subject here. It has to do with funding of this kind of research. Uh, I wonder if Amy feels that uh, either her own project or projects, plural, uh, in, uh, in the university are well-funded and uh, uh, how they uh, these kind of projects compete with others, and uh, just for the sake of controversy, uh, comparing with military research projects. Well, great question, Jean, and I definitely appreciate you drawing attention to uh, the need for research in this area. I clearly feel it's important since I'm devoting a lot of my life energy to it. I have to tell you, I'm ignorant uh, to the comparison of the dollars that go to gut microbiome research as compared to military, but I'm sure it, it pales in comparison. And, you know, the one thing I can say is that uh, the, fund, the funding agencies, such as National Institutes of Health and the uh, United States Department of Agriculture, really have prioritized this type of research right now. In fact, they've put out several requests for proposals in this area, especially proposals where uh, scientists are willing to collaborate across disciplines. So working not just with biology, but also potentially pulling in uh, mental health professionals and trying to cross some of these boundaries so that we can learn more about the, the widespread effects of uh, how gut microbes influence all aspects of our health and our life. So, uh, I, you know, I think that funding in general for scientific research 
has been going down year for year. And so as a whole, uh, I have a concern as a scientist for what that means for the future. Scientists are having to get very creative. <laughs> so uh, there's actually a project called American Gut Project. Uh, it's a very creative way to fund this type of work. It started here in Boulder with a scientist that has hence moved to, to San Diego. But I think it's Is a, that Rob Knight? Yes, mm -hmm. Rob Knight uh, from CU Boulder started this project and it's a brilliant idea because what it does is it allows people to get some information about their own health you can send in your own sample and then it's added into sort of this data bank as we start to learn more about what this means for individuals and connect patterns and um, and then you pay for that analysis I think originally that started out at $99 and I think um, you know there are some less expensive crowdfunded ways to get that information now. But it's um, basically that type of funding for scientific research is called crowdfunding, and it's where you really get the public excited and have them participate, chip in a little bit of their money if they feel it's important, and then they get information about themselves that can be beneficial for, for learning about um, how a specific change they made in their lifestyle has affected their gut. Well, Jean, thanks for that call. So basically people could look up the American Gut Project and basically um, pay with their poop. That's exactly right. And then, you um, you know, you do have to sm pay a small fee to get the data back. And I know that that, uh, that project is, is still going on. It may be winding down. There's another crowdfunded project called Ubiome that people may want to take a look at. They're doing something similar. And their research is just starting off. So where American Gut's starting to wrap up their project, there's another one starting out now called Ubiome. And they'll actually let you send in samples from all over your body so you can learn about your skin microbiome and your mouth microbiome and all kinds of different territories. Also based in Boulder, right? That one, um, I actually, I thought it was when we spoke last night, but they're in San Francisco. Interesting. So, and related to Jean's question about funding, so you mentioned that you got to get creative, but there is some funding. I mean, it wasn't long ago when President Obama announced the so-called National Microbiome Initiative. Right. Kind of like the Brain Initiative. I don't know how much financial heft there is behind it, but it certainly seems like that's adding some credibility and authority oh, absolutely and i i think that that particular project was hugely instrumental in moving this research forward for example when that project started to to the costs for doing this type of research have gone down by at least 10 orders of magnitude. And so what that means is even labs that aren't getting $2 million grants from National Institutes of Health can do small studies with smaller pieces of money from crowdfunding or from a, a local extension agency and, and advance this knowledge without, again, having to be million-dollar labs. And that was really the result of the funding that was put behind that project that brought the cost of the technology down. So it was huge. Fascinating. Well, thanks for the calls. And another caller has asked, um, how do prebiotics, like Jerusalem artichokes, work with probiotics? And, and first describe what each of them are. Sure. Thanks for that question. I think it's really important to understand uh, the difference between a prebiotic and a probiotic. So a probiotic is a specific organism uh, that's delivered often, again, to have a specific health effect. And a prebiotic is basically the food that the microorganism eats. So in Jerusalem artichokes, um, they're full of a fiber called inulin that our bodies don't digest well, but that our gut microbes just love. They're actually they're also, inulin is also high in raw onions and in other start, certain starchy tubers. And uh, what we know is if, if you're delivering a specific organism, then you're giving the organism, but it may or may not 
survive. And so sometimes they're paired with a specific prebiotic like inulin that we know is going to help them sort of take up residence, maybe not permanently, but a little longer because they, they have their favorite food. And a lot of the research now is, is looking at prebiotics alone without actually delivering a specific organism, because what they might do is uh, encourage, for example, um, a, a particular beneficial that's already in your gut to just increase so that it's playing a larger role in the community, or it might entice um, another organism that might be on the surface of your skin to take residence in your gut. And so a lot of the research is really looking at, okay, what are these prebiotics? How are they different? And what types of organisms do they, do they lure in to, to live in our bodies? Thank you for that question. So in addition to Jerusalem artichokes, raw onions... Yes. Tubular things. Is it foods that people take that aren't sort of supplements on the prebiotic front, right? Right. And I'm a big fan of of getting your prebiotics from your food. It's one of the reasons why people recommend that we eat more whole grains because they're full of prebiotic type compounds and fibers. Uh, For instance, um, you know, you can have uh, oligosaccharides also that are, those are a prebiotic and they're found in legumes like lentils and chickpeas and beans. Mm. And so that... Beans, mushrooms, onions, and greens are a great way to get those prebiotics um, into your body when just by eating what what is healthy for you as well. You said raw onions. What about cooked? So cooked onions still have inulin, just a little bit less. Uh huh. So plug for the raw food folks. That's right. <laughs> right. So another caller asked, oh, if you could repeat um, an earlier statement that you made about something that's beneficial to take, sort of a tablespoon a day. Was it the vinegar? I think that was apple cider vinegar that we were talking about. And uh, basically what's in apple cider vinegar is uh, acetic acid. Our microbes make a number of compounds that are sort of similar to that. And they're just very small molecules. And the vinegar actually is sort of like a fermentation that happens outside of your gut. So when we eat our food and the microbes break it down and ferment it in our gut, it's part of our digestion. But when vinegar is made, that happens outside in a jar. And so it's a way that you can get these um, beneficial compounds without wondering if your gut microbes are making them or not and just add a little more. And what we know it does is it actually interacts with receptors in our gut that tell us we've eaten enough. So that's one thing it does. And it also helps calm down inflammation for intestinal tissue. So those are two um, well-known beneficial effects. From and it's it. the fermentation of the apple as opposed to, let's say, you could do this with balsamic or champagne vinegar or white wine vinegar. Right. And so in all of those cases, the microbes are starting with a different material, and they just keep breaking it down into smaller, smaller pieces. And in all vinegars, what they share in common is this acetic ad- acid molecule, which is what gives it that uh, distinct vinegary smell and taste. Oh, so you can take a diversity of vinegar. It's not just apple cider vinegar. That's right. Or does that have the most? So apple cider vinegar, especially raw apple cider vinegar, has some of the fibers uh, remaining from that fermentation process. And so some people believe that's more beneficial because, again, you're delivering the organism with maybe a little bit of something left for it to eat so that it has a better chance to take up house. Thanks. Well, we've got a few more minutes left to call um, for with any questions for Amy Shefflin, 303-442-4242. Next caller is Jim in Boulder. Welcome. Hey, um, is the, like, dirt you get on your plants and from gardening and on your hands, is it good for you, like... It 
gets things in you that you need in you, or is it bad for you? Like there's that hygienic hypothesis that inflammatory diseases come from being too clean and not having enough dirt or not even having exposure to manure and little kids and stuff, and asthma and things may come from not having enough dirt. But then there's also toxoplasmosis, like from cat poop and parasites and stuff that you can get. And some people say parasites are good for you, and sometimes parasites aren't good for you. So are we supposed to wash our vegetables and hands really well, or are we supposed to eat the dirt? Great question. Bye. It is a good question, Jim. Thanks for that. And I, I love the, hy- the hygiene hypothesis because it gives us all an excuse to spend less of our time cleaning and more time doing <laughs> what we love. Um, but you're right. It's, it's a good question because there are beneficial and harmful organisms in most dirt, especially, you know, you mentioned a parasite. There's also salmonella and giardia. And so um, I think that one of the things that you can do is, um, you know, I think perhaps in this it's also moderation because we know that when people grow up living, say, like on a farm where they're exposed to a lot of different types of bacteria, animals, dust, um, you know, uh, cleaning up after horses, and you just get so many different types of bacteria, and so your body gets colonized by the beneficial ones. It learns how to form relationships and recognize which ones are going to hurt it. And what that does is it it just sets up our immune systems, first of all, to have this whole very diverse group of um, microbes living in and on it that help keep out things like toxoplasmosis or like salmonella. And so... If you have that healthy groundwork laid so that your immune system is healthy, then most of the time the organisms that are in the dirt or on the plants are not going to be able to break through that barrier of defense. If, however, you're an immune-compromised individual, or maybe you've had a lot of antibiotics, or maybe you grow up in a really sterile environment and you're having trouble reestablishing your microbiome, then you probably want to think through what types of environments you're exposing yourself to and try to minimize the odds that you are going to be exposed to something like uh, a harmful pathogen like salmonella. So you would want to, you know, for example, not go into an environment where there was poor sanitation. Um, you know, we there's a reason why we started out in microbiology kind of in this state of war, and that is mm. people were getting very sick, for example, like from cholera, where sanitation was bad, um, they had sewage mixing with water, and people got very, very sick. So um, if you already have that healthy foundation, then don't worry about it. If you don't, be particular about which microbes you're hanging out with. To bottom line. Loosen up, hang out in the yard a little more, but not if you're already compromised. Right. Thank you. Uh, Several more calls. We've got Marty in Boulder. Welcome to the show. Sort of backs on the question before, but what about if you're traveling to a foreign country where the uh, sanitation is is questionable and uh, the food you eat can't control necessarily? Is there any kind of protective uh, substance you can take? to protect yourself from, uh, you know, being uh, consumed by the pathogens that you might uh, ingest. Um, So I was wondering about that. That's a good question. And to be honest, I don't know. um, There could be. It, It makes sense to me that there could be, but I am not aware of one. That doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. I would, I think it'd be great 
to, to ask your doctor about that before you travel in case there is. But just logically, you know, people that live in these local areas where travelers tend to get sick um, don't. And that's probably partially due to the fact that they have the microbes in place in their own bodies to protect them from the local microbes that want to invade. And so who knows, maybe someday that you will be able to inoculate yourself with the local flora that will protect you from these symptoms. But as far as I know right now, that's still a, a future development. Thanks for that question. Uh, next, we have John in Louisville. Welcome. Thanks. Uh, and thanks for sharing this knowledge with the general public. Um, my question was related to fast. Yeah, my question is related to fasting. What does fasting do to your gut? Great question. Thank you, John. So actually, there's some recent research out on this topic. And interestingly, you know, I was talking about how if you eat a low-fiber diet within 24 hours, your microbes are starving and they're breaking down those protective mucus layers. And what the study found is that when people were on uh, a week-long fast, at the end, there, there was an increase in the microorganisms that were breaking down uh, mucins in the gut. So it's possible that when you're starving, your microbes are also starving. Now, in this particular study, what I found interesting is the two that they found that were increasing are actually beneficial microorganisms in many ways. So... Uh, one of them is, is named Fecalibacterium prausnitzii, which is a, a mouthful, and that's a new one that many people probably haven't heard of. But Say that one more um, time. Fecalibacterium prausnitzii. So, Got it. Um, there's, a, there's a great microbe trivia answer for you. But this organism is very up and coming in the world of beneficial gut microbes. It's not one we knew was helping humans out uh, to keep their gut healthy, and it's, um, more and more research is coming out to show that it's, it's particularly important for humans. So, uh, you know, as in all things, I think you'll see some evidence with each thing you try that's benefiting you and some that could be harmful because there really aren't any heroes or villains in this case. It's all a uh, scale of, of gray. Thanks for that question. We've got time for one more. Welcome, Jenny from Longmont. Hi. Um, yeah, I'm sort of feeling a need to have um, access to a lot of this data because if you go to a normal, uh, your everyday doctor or even a gastroenterologist, they really don't know um, what to suggest? They might say eat yogurt or something like that. Because I did actually join the American Gut Project, thanks to KG and you for that. Um, and I found I'm pretty different, and I have all these sensitivities. And so I'm sort of feeling like, um, you know, uh, there's not much there from the health practitioner standpoint to for the average person. I'm just wondering if there's any kind of movement there for to get this information out to regular citizens. Thank you for that great question, and I am gonna uh, I'm gonna share a couple of books that I love. That um, one was done by a gastroenterologist who had some issues with his own gut, got very passionate about learning more about the research, and now helps people. He's designed menus. He's put the research in very accessible. His name is Gerard Mullins, M-U-L-L-I-N-S. And his first book is called The Inside Tract, Tract spelled T-R-A-C-T. There's also a, a husband-wife team that do research at Stanford. Um, their last name is Sonnenberg, S-O-N-N-E-N-B-U-R-G. And their book is called The Good Gut. And they do research along the lines of what 
our lab does at CSU, but perhaps even on a larger scale, but at Stanford. And I think that their book is brilliantly written. It really makes a lot of the work that they've done and other people have done accessible to, to every reader. So I, I hope people will enjoy those books as much as I have. I think that they're doing important work, and, and feel free to share it with your practitioners. I think they want to know about this, but they don't have the time they need to to really dig into the research and, and get the details out. Great. Thank you. Thank you. That's a great final question. I was going to ask you, where can people go great. to find out more? Well, thank you, all these callers. Definitely. Um, I think we I will now declare... 2016, the year of the gut for KGNU. We'll be doing plenty more on the How on Earth Science Show, and I'm sure well beyond that. So thank you so much, Amy Shefflin, for coming on the show. Excellent. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. That was Amy Shefflin, a doctoral student at Colorado State University in food science and human nutrition. Thanks again. And I want to say we will announce some of the names of these books and other resources on kgnu.org on a public affair. And I'm Susan Moran. Thanks for the show.